As I said, this is Joel chapter 3. It's our final chapter. And Joel is a very small book, but it's been quite powerful. Because in the first chapter, it's probably the clearest description of a literal locust attack and the devastation it had on Israel at the time. And the second chapter says, yes, the first chapter was bad. There's a literal one. But when Jesus comes and the day of judgment comes, how much more devastating will that be for some people? And also in chapter 2, he gave us by far the most powerful description of the coming of the Holy Spirit that happened at the day of Pentecost. As we come now to the third chapter, uh, one of the commentators said that this was one of the most powerful and clearest presentations of the day of judgment. And it's a thought that many of us don't want to think about, but it is very clear in Scripture. Oddly enough, the Bible tells us far more about hell than it does about heaven. So let's come and look at Joel chapter 3 and see what it teaches us. And the chapter has two very strong things. It has a sense of restoration for believers. What does it mean for the believers to be saved, to be transformed, to be empowered on that day? And then has a darker side of saying, it is also the day of judgment. So let's start with the idea of restoration there in chapter 3 verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time... I'll restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So what does in those days and that time mean? Now many people have a very weird and wonderful idea of what the last days can mean. And uh, the term for some people say, oh, the last days are the, the days, weeks and months just before Jesus returns. And uh, if you go to America especially, a lot of the Christians there will say, oh, we're living in the last days, meaning... We're living in the last months or years before Jesus comes back. I uh, quite intrigued myself this week. I uh, researched the uh, number of writers who said that Jesus is returning in 2020. And I thought, well, before I get too scared, I read ones who said Jesus is returning in 2019. And uh, the prophecies were made there. And I had someone on Facebook put up all these prophecies yesterday. And I thought, these prophecies really do show me that this guy is an exceptionally right-wing voter. And he uh, uh, had all these prophecies of blessing on every white-wing politician. And I thought, uh, you know, this guy wasn't talking about Jesus, wasn't talking about the gospel, wasn't talking about salvation. He was just talking about politics. And that's an easy thing to do. So what does it mean for you and I as Presbyterians? What does the last day actually mean? The last day occurs between Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the pouring of the Holy Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost. That's the beginning. The end is the day that Jesus comes back. And what does Jesus teach about this day? He says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. Now some people say, yes, we don't know the day now, but we do know it's going to be next year. We don't. It could be in another thousand years. It could be another 2,000 years before Jesus comes back. It's interesting, during the church's life, there were times when they thought Jesus was coming back that they would all stop building churches and said, why build a church today if Jesus comes back tomorrow? We'll just put up with the old buildings until he comes in a couple of months' time. And uh, it has had massive impact at different times on people's thinking. You can also have a sad situation. A friend of mine was in a church where the minister very clearly taught them that Jesus was coming next year. So they borrowed a massive amount of money saying, well, we don't have to pay this off because Jesus comes back next year. We'll enjoy all these blessings from God. And next year, who cares? Because he pays all the bills. 
and next year Jesus didn't come back and that year they became bankrupt. That took years and years and years for them to recover from bad theology. So what does the end times, last days mean? It's the time that we live in now. How long will it be for? Nobody knows. And don't try and guess it because you'll make a mistake. So what does it say there? I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now in an immediate sense in terms of Joel, it's most likely being fulfilled with the Babylonian exile. When the people come back to Israel after the exile, it has that sense of limited fulfilment. But as a far greater fulfilment, the day that Jesus comes back, our lives as believers are changed forever and for eternity. And we need to be reminded by these words in verse 16 of chapter 3. For the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel and a stronghold to us as Christian believers. God is our rock, our strength, our refuge. When everything else is crumbling around us, he can be our firm foundation. Now it's interesting when we talk about our relationship with God. It's like this. You could go and buy every single magazine and cut out every article from the royal family. And I won't talk about which member of my family has done this. But no matter how many articles and how many clippings you have, it doesn't make you a royal. It doesn't even make you a friend of the royals or even a neighbour of the royals. For us as Christians, when we talk about relationship, it's not from paper clippings of God, but God wants you and I to be in an intimacy of relationship with him. So how does God describe our relationship? 1 John 3 verse 1. The Father has loved us so much that he has called us children of God. What it says in Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. So God's Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit to give us confidence that we are God's children. We're not leftovers on the edge of society. God treats us as his family. Now, Paul, when he wrote to the church in Galatia in chapter 4, puts it in a longer sentence. It says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, this real sense of intimacy, of relationship. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then you are heir through God. So God has this confidence that he's calling us to be his own. He knows that the day we die that we join him in heaven from that moment on. So that's the first part of the book. It's all about restoration. From now, verse 2, it goes darker because it looks at judgment. So there in chapter 3, verse 2 of Joel. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. What does Jehoshaphat mean? It's the valley of decision, or that God judges. Then in verse 12 it says, Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I'll sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Then in verse 14, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now if you get your GPS out and you go to... Uh, Israel, you use Google Maps and you put in Valley of Jehoshaphat, nothing comes up and you think, oh my gosh, what's happened here? I thought Google Maps knew everything. Because there's no place in Israel that's called Valley of Jehoshaphat. But the name means the Lord judges. 
So the imagery here is that God will bring about judgment to the whole world. And it's a sense that the value of decision is every aspect of our planet is the place of judgment for every person. And Psalm chapter 2 puts it very clearly. Why do the nations rage and the people plan a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's being attacked? Believers and God. Same today as it was when this was written, as it was in the time of Psalms. Are believers attacked today? Yes, because we are God's anointed. And it's amazing. The largest uh, group who face persecution in the world is Christians. And significantly more than all the other religions combined. So for many churches, though, however, this idea of judgment and the idea of hell is embarrassing for them. But why do we teach about hell? Because hell reminds you and I that God not only is a God of love, but he's a God of justice as well, that he will bring about the rights of those things that are wrong, that he will bring people to attention and to account for their misbehaviour. Now it's interesting, in this, these passages, there's nothing about believers needing to worry because you and I are not judged the same way as the church. We'll look at that soon. But our day of judgment is a day of joy for us, but it's a day for other people that think, oh my gosh, how stupid was I? So for believers, our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. As it says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. When I stand before God on Judgment Day, I bring nothing. Except Jesus says, this is one of ours. And God says, you are my son. Welcome. Come on in. In Acts, chapter two, uh, Acts 4, verse 12. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Jesus is God's only answer. It says there's only one road that leads to heaven, but there's a million roads that lead to hell. Now, uh, one of the great preachers of the past, a man called Deal Moody, it's often said that Deal Moody would never refer to hell without tears in his voice. A study by Barna Group, which is a, a Christian research group in America, revealed that half of American pastors, at least, will not preach on hell because they're embarrassed that they may offend somebody. You meet someone who's smoking, you say, oh, I'm not going to tell them how bad smoking is because they may be offended. You see someone who's doing really dumb things, you say, I won't tell them they're doing dumb things because I might offend them. Sometimes a spade's a spade. You've got to tell people to their face and say, this is bad. This is going to take you down the wrong road. Now it's interesting, in the passage here has the idea of the value of decision. And you imagine the countless evangelistic meetings who've had preached on the value of decision. Today is the value of decision. What will you decide? However, Joel's context here is the exact opposite. Man does not indeed stand in the value of decision, but it is God who does the deciding, not man. 
You stand in the valley of decision. God's decision is, you followed me, you didn't. He is one who decides. He is one who knows. We can only come to God because he first calls us. Our salvation is never in our own strength. But the Holy Spirit empowers us to respond. And I've grabbed a couple of verses here on that idea. First one, John 6, 44. No one can come to me, no one can come to God, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And Paul, when he wrote to uh, to Timothy, who was a, uh, a young pastor, Paul says this, Who saves us and calls us to a holy calling? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus. When we talk about judgment in the Bible, there are two types. For the unbeliever, judgment is like our modern uh, court of law. Your sins and your sinful attitudes will be under examination and you'll be judged by your misbehaviour, your sins and what you have done wrong. And you'll be clearly confronted by your own sinful nature. Now for Christians, the judgment or the beamer seat is the exact opposite. The idea of judgment is that of the Olympic Games. Our judgment is gold, silver, bronze. Not how bad we have been. And the Bible says that God will reward those and the actions of believers. Now this is a, uh, an interesting topic. You go into great depth. But there's some sense that when we arrive in heaven, there are different levels of heaven. From my point of view, if I'm sitting in the last row, in the back seat near the exit door, I'm still grateful because I'm still in heaven. But uh, I'll be looking down and there'll be people who've been martyred for their faith and they'll be in the front row and I'll be praising God saying, God, they deserve to be down there. They were so faithful to you. So Psalm 62. O Lord, you are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Well, Jesus in Matthew 16 says, For the Son of Man is going to come to his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. So there's some sense in heaven that there's blessings of abundance that are poured upon us. And I reckon if you're the worst person in heaven, it sure beats being the best person in hell. Because it's one of grace. Our judgment is not determined who will go into heaven. The sins of believers will not be an issue on the day of judgment. Because they're all been forgiven. And Psalm 103 puts it very powerfully. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There's a conscious, deliberate act on the day of judgment that everything sinful in us is removed. We are left as sinless creatures before God. As it says in Micah 7 verse 19, He will have compassion on us. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our sins are gone, they are forgotten. So as we stand on Judgment Day, what does it mean? Romans 8, Then therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
There's no one whispering in heaven saying, my gosh, how did he get in here? There's no sense of God saying, gee, you only made it by the skin of your teeth. You're lucky you're here. Because it says in John 5, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. This is the confidence that we have as believers. As it says in 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And in 1 John 2, And now little children abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him and his coming. So none of us will be going there saying, Oh my gosh, cover my head, what am I doing here? There'd be a sense that each of us would say, My gosh, I'm here because of Jesus. And I'm here because of Jesus alone. So how do we describe our life as a Christian? 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is a great verse to have at a funeral. So imagine you're up here in your coffin, your family are here. Wouldn't it be great to say to them, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And that's what God does. He holds on to us and never lets us go. Now sadly, when Joel was writing, Israel, Judah, was facing many enemies. It says here in the scriptures that they were scattered, uh, Israel, among the nations. They'd faced the difficulties. One of the difficulties they faced was that of slavery. There in verse 3, it talks about trading a boy for a prostitute. In the next verse, and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. And then in verse 6, you have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from your own borders. What a horror it is to think that people are kept as slaves. Has this problem disappeared? Sadly, no. It is believed that there are over 40 million slaves in the world today who are trapped in modern-day slavery. Over 24 million are being used as slave labourers. Over 15 million have been forced into marriages of their, not of their own choosing. And there are 5.4 victims of slavery for every 1,000 people on planet Earth. 71% of traffic victims around the world are women and girls. 37% of slaves have child-forced marriages. 21% of all slaves are there for sexual exploitation of children. Slavery is barbaric. It was barbaric in the time of Joel. It's barbaric in our time. It was barbaric when Wilberforce fought for slavery to be stopped. There are many Christian organisations who still today will fight for what is true. We are all in God's image. We are all precious. We all need to have the opportunity to hear the gospel. What other problems did they face in the time of Joel? It says Tyre and Sidon and Philistia. That verse 5, they were taken your silver and your gold. What does God do? In verse 8, I would sell your sons and daughters into the hands of Judah. And they will sell them. Now, the very slavery you have done will fall back on your head. And then in verse 10 it says, 
beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Why would they have to make spears and swords? Because they were fighting against God. And they would use whatever they had in their power to attack God. Now, do we have attacks today in the church? Yes, we do. In Jakarta, in the Christian Examiner, it said that over a thousand churches in Indonesia have been closed since the country passed the Religious Harmony Law in 2006. A thousand churches closed in 14 years. Let's bring it down to one church. When I was lecturing at Bible College, one of my students came and saw me, a lovely uh, Indonesian student. He arrived uh, to see me and he was deeply in tears pouring down his face. He'd been obviously sobbing for hours. And he came and spoke to me about what had happened. The church in Indonesia that had sent him to Australia to study so that he could be their pastor had been burnt down by the locals. Many of the members of his church, his friends, had been killed. Others had been beaten. Others thrown in prison. And some ran into the dangers of the jungle and walked for many days to escape. And it's from them he heard what had happened. He came to me in tears and said, the only reason I'm here is to train to be their pastor. How can I be a pastor if the church is not there? How can I be a pastor if the people are dead? What is to become of me now? This was my desire to study here and go back and pastor till the day I died. That's a thousand churches down to one. That's why we as a church support groups like Open Doors who fight for those who struggle. The passage goes on to describe other parts of the world. It says, Egypt and Edom. Egypt shall become a desolation. At that time, it was a wealthy, prosperous country. But to desolation we go. To Edom, a desolation of wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars withdraw their shine. In other words, when Jesus comes back, the change to the world is cataclysmic. Everyone is impacted by that event. But what about you and I as believers? On the day of judgment, what does it say? Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water in a dry, parched land. The coming of that much water is a day of joy. I wonder how many of you saw the different farmers dancing last week. And the rains fell for them. As a farmer dances for joy when the drought is broken, so a Christian will dance for joy at the day that Jesus returns. A day of festivities. And for most people, you say, what's the greatest day of your life? People regularly will talk about the, the day they got married. And what is heaven described as? This gigantic wedding feast. 
a day of celebration like no other day. What does also does it mean for us as Christian believers? We are to preach God's word clearly to others. We need to warn people of hell. We need to warn people of judgment and warn them that they need to follow Jesus as a saviour, that there's nothing more than recognising his lordship. It's not their works, but his gift that brings salvation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, help us to preach your word powerfully to everybody. Give us the right words and the confidence to share your will. Father God, also may we celebrate in the joy that stands before us. And in the midst of any hardships we may face today, may we always hold on to the hope that you have salvation planned for us for eternity. Amen. Now capture the theme of this.